Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Last year was the 200th anniversary of the death of Antonio Canova, the greatest European sculptor of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The National Gallery of Art and the Art Institute of Chicago are marking the occasion with a major exhibition called Canova Sketching in Clay. My first guest this week is C.D. Dickerson III, who, along with Emerson Boyer of the Art Institute, co-curated the show. The exhibition features more than 30 of Canova's surviving sketch models in clay, handsy works that helped Canova plan his designs, think through his designs, for large sculptures. In addition to clay models, the exhibition also includes a number of plaster works and vinyl marbles, such as Canova's iconic, influential 1805-07 portrait of Letizia Bonaparte, often known as Madame Mare. Canova is at the National Gallery of Art through October 9th. The excellent catalog was published by the National Gallery. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 60, 65 bucks. On the second segment, Griselda Rosas at the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. But first, C.D. Dickerson, after the break. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy will be the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The exhibition Southern Modern, organized by the Mint Museum in collaboration with the Georgia Museum of Art, is on view at the latter through December 10th. Southern Modern is the first project to comprehensively survey the rich array of paintings and works on paper created in the American South during the first half of the 20th century. Featuring more than 100 works of art drawn from public and private collections across the country, It provides the fullest, richest, and most accurate overview to date of the artistic activity in the South during this period and illuminates the important and hitherto overlooked role that it played in American art history. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Southern Modern or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. And we're back. C.D. Dickerson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. Great to be here. We think of Antonio Canova as the maker of hyper-refined, often elegant marble sculptures. And this exhibition features his mm, initial expression of ideas in sketch models 
made from clay. When in Canova's process of developing an idea, did he use or work through clay? I think the second he began to contemplate mm-hmm. any kind of composition, he, he reached for clay. And of course, that depended on how convenient it was for him to get to clay. And many times he might have pulled out a sketchbook if he was in his carriage or walking about. But it seems quite clear from written sources, especially from the diary entries that he writes when he first arrives in Rome as a a 20-something. It's almost every day he's making a practice of modeling, going around the city, getting some clumps of clay and trying to create compositions. And I think that kind of mentality, wanting to explore his ideas very quickly in succession was instilled with him from the very beginning. He must have made hundreds and hundreds of models over the course of his life. And somehow only 60 come down to us. And, you know, we've been able to get more than half of them to come to Washington for the exhibition. But there's something about clay that really electrified Canova. And it's a through line in his entire working process from initial sketch all the way to finished marble. You mentioned the question of of how many clay models come down to us. So before we turn to specific works and such, you and your co-curator Emerson Boyer note in your co-written catalog essay that during Canova's lifetime, none of these models were exhibited in the usual kind of institutional ways or made commercially available, at least not that we know of. So how did they, you know, live in his studio? How did he use them? Part of the question depends on the preservation of these clay models. And I I don't think it was a regular practice to have them fired. You know, maybe Giuseppe up the street had his kiln going and some enterprising assistant decided there was a, you know, a group that was available that he could cart up and have fired. But I I don't think it was something regular for Canova. And in fact, I would say maybe a third of the ones that survive aren't fired clay models. They're terra crudas and, uh, you know, ones that just happen to dry naturally and miraculously survive. So the ones that existed within his studio, you know, I think they were kind of rare survivals. Maybe, you know, after he'd made one sketch model, he, he, uh, you know, just tossed it back in the bin and started over again. But it's quite clear that within the studio, there was a kind of a private chamber where, you know, Nova would retire to. There may have been shelves where he put some of his favorite models, where he sketched, where he did his modeling, kind of an inner sanctum where he could allow his private thoughts to, to materialize. But as you say, these were never made commercially available. The ones that got away from Canova's studio are ones that he specifically gifted to very close friends. And it's clear that he established a practice of giving sketch models to his closest acquaintances, which again, gives these uh, models a, a note of significance within Canova's practice that he respected what they meant as reflections of his imagination and something that he, he prized and wanted to give again to intimate friends. You mentioned Canova's studio. There's a fun kind of mini exhibition on paper within the catalog in which you all show portraits uh, that the painters made of Canova and some engravings, which you argue are a a means of information that we should consider. You know, whether whether Canova is shown in portraits painted by his friends and colleagues as working on marble or clay, mostly clay, you all found interesting and, 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 and useful as knowledge. And that part of the catalog is particularly entertaining. So before we turn to like some specific works, What have you learned about how Canova's expression of an idea in clay is different from his expression of an idea in plaster and then in marble? 
I mean, first, there's, a, there, there's simply a process of refinement that occurs with each iteration. You know, so he's he's modeling with complete abandon. The sketch models are extremely expressionistic. What's incredible about Canova, his ability to capture expression, to capture anguish, pathos, with the barest of means possible, with you know a quick flick of his tool to render an eye, a mouth. But you know, in that split second that he's making that tool mark, it's just at the perfect angle so that you understand that sorrow is being rendered or that agony is is being expressed. And and I find that truly extraordinary. As he progresses, you know, the thing about Canova is that, you know, he then works up ever larger, finer models to the point of creating a model that would have been first executed in clay on a one-to-one scale with the finished marble. And these larger clay models would then be cast in plaster just because it was impractical to try to, to fire larger models. It was much easier to have them cast into plaster to turn them into something durable that could be used during the reproductive process of copying from the model to the finished marble. So as he as he works through his ever larger, you see the kind of refinement creeping into his work that's ultimately translated into the finished marble. But we, you know, we we note in the catalog and elsewhere that there's this continuing sense of malleability because every step up to the point where you're actually carving the marble is rendered in clay. And it seems that he really wants that manipulability of clay, that kind of softness of flesh, persevere into the finished marbles. And it was really one of the reasons that we chose to bring some of his finest marbles into the exhibition so that visitors could really understand what the surface is and the, the, the clay-like quality of these marbles. Because when you look at photographs, you know, they, 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 they look like marble. They, they do look quite hard and, and white and glistening. But there's a different effect when you see them in person, especially when surrounded with the clay models. Well, speaking of works that you have in marble, I thought that a way of talking through how Canova developed and used clay sketch models might be his great portrait of Letizia Bonaparte, the so-called Madame Mare from 1804, 1807-ish. You have within the exhibition, Canova versions of the idea in clay, plaster, and then of course the marble from Chatsworth House or from Chatsworth in, in the UK. So first off, who is Letizia Bonaparte and how did Canova come to be assigned to make a portrait sculpture of her as it sort of is? <laughs> yeah, Letizia is uh, Napoleon's mother and she visited Rome in 1804 and uh, you know Canova was at the height of his fame and she went and commissioned personally uh, the sculpture from Canova. He worked on it for two to three years and then dispatched it back to Paris, where you know, there's some story that comes down that Letizia asked uh, her son to have the statue placed uh, opposite his throne in the Tuileries, and uh, Napoleon did not like that and had the, the sculpture relegated to storage. And then after the fall of the empire, uh, the Duke of Devonshire acquired it and brought it to the UK. But it's an extraordinary loan. We're enormously grateful that it could come across the Atlantic. Um, it went once to London. It's the only time it's left Chatsworth House. Quite a lot of engineering to be able to bring it across the Atlantic. And it's front and center in the exhibition because it's kind of an extraordinary case where we can reconstruct the entire sequence leading up to the marble. There's three sketch models that survive. We have two. The other one that remains at the Museo Canova is just too crumbly and couldn't possibly make the trip. 
But the two that that we do have show changes in poses that he's reflecting on what is the most effective way to make a composition, to make the titsia seem accessible. So there are changes in the position of the arms, there are changes in the way that she looks, the way her feet. And the next step, we then move towards kind of a medium-sized model where the pose is kind of locked in, it's refined. He begins to work on the physiognomy of the face somewhat. Then on the uh, end of the sequence, you know, you have the the fabulous marble. There is a full-scale plaster that survives in Naples, but it just isn't in any condition to travel. But there are only so many places within Canova's oeuvre where you can bring terracotta models with the plaster, with the finished marble together. And, and this is one of the great occurrences. I think one of the things that the progression y'all were able to exhibit shows is that there is a point in the process, a, a point in Canova's process, at which he begins thinking of an Agrippina. I guess, first of all, what is the Capitoline Agrippina and how does your exhibition, how are you able to show us the Agrippina entering the chat, as it were? <laughs> so the Capitoline Agrippina was a famous antiquity that existed in Rome, and it it, it shows a Roman matron seated in the pose that you observe Madame Mare in Canova's final solution. And in the exhibition, we we do note with a comparative illustration on the label, the Agrippina. And Canova took a certain amount of fire for so slavishly copying an existing composition in antiquity. And the thing to note when you look back and forth between the ancient model and the finished sculpture is, is still, you know, how much more naturalistic and what the kind of life lightness that Canova is able to infuse into his sculpture to create something that that still is, is radically different from the ancient model. And, and that was really, you know, Canova's gift as a neoclassical artist that even though his basis for so many of his compositions were completely rooted in antiquity, he was able to charge them with this incredible sense of naturalness and lifelikeness, which in the context of an exhibition on clay, you know, we point back to uh, the malleability of clay as being something that helped him to be able to succeed in that way. Yeah. How do the two clay Madame Mares show us how he brings that naturalism into the sculpture, even as he works toward the Agrippina composition? You know, I think with the clay sketches, it's not so much an issue of naturalism as him, you know, really just trying to think out the rudiments of of composition. I mean, one of the things that's so striking to me when you look at the face of these sketch models is they're anything but naturalistic. You know, he's using such a spare means of tool to, especially with the model that comes to us from the Queen Estampalia in Venice, there's like a series of little dots that he uses to render the mouth of the figure that that isn't naturalistic at all. But, you know, he's just doing this for himself. It's it's his own kind of notational modeling style that allows him to begin to lock in pose and lock in aspects of the figure. There's one beautiful detail to be seen in that particular model from the Queen Estampalia. If you go around to the back of her head and the way that the little curl of hair that comes down the nape of her neck, it's been sort of Mm -hmm. um, imprinted in a zigzag fashion that I, I find to be really quite extraordinary that he took the time to kind of make that pattern and the whole back of her hair, the way it's just been stabbed with um, kind of a little pointed wooden tool animates it in, 
I would say a naturalistic way, but in the kind of naturalism that is with uh, impressionism, that when you take a, a step back, you know, it, it begins to congeal in your mind's eye as a sensation of locks of hair that have been tightly curled and, and bound. I may be completely wrong about what I'm about to say, because I've not seen the show yet, just seen the images in the catalog. But one of the things that really struck me as, you know, making it into the marble work, if you will, is this extreme relaxation in the shoulders and kind of the upper torso in Canova's representation of his sitter. She just looks ultimately relaxed, which is also, I think, there in in, in the marble. But I don't know if it works that way in real life, but it's your images. Yeah, no, it's she's she's very approachable figure. And I think that's one of the keys to the success of the composition. And I think you're right, probably about kind of the slouching arms. And, you know, in the first model, the arms are kind of at her side. And then she turns and, and bring one one arm up onto the top of the chair, which, again, it's kind of disarming. And it, it makes her a very approachable, accessible figure. So I think Madame Mare is likely a headline moment in the show. And another headline moment is your ability to show a work called The Three Graces. I guess first, what what is that work and why is it important within Canova's oeuvre? The Three Graces was one of Canova's most iconic um, sculptures. It's in two versions. The first was made for Empress Josephine Bonaparte, and it is a I mean, it represents the heights of kind of this neoclassical sensualism that Canova was so adept at creating, showing three figures, their interlocking arms, and in this kind of beautiful rhythmic dance. And it, you know, it becomes kind of the poster child for neoclassical sculpture. And obviously, it took a, a lot of planning to to get to that point where he could create something, these interlocking forms that, I mean, I mean it's just incredibly beautiful how the ribbons of drapery interlock between the figures, how they turn in on one another. It really bolts Canova into the kind of international stardom that was the key to his fame. And it begins, we only have two surviving models for the sculpture. One is a true sketch model, what we call a bozzetto in Italian, and it's radically different from the final solution. And you'll notice there that the the figures are really quite turned in on themselves. And uh, the central figure is created as almost a pillar of clay that rises unnaturally tall above the others. And then in the second model, he takes decisive steps towards the finished solution and really begins to play with the way that the figures are looking at each other, begins to work on the ribbon of drapery that connects them and flows between them. But you see just between those two moments, between the bozzetto and what we would call a modello, even though there's there's a bit of sketchiness that still enters into his modeling style there, the, the process of refinement that's at the heart of the way Canova worked towards the finished marble. I was going to ask about refinement. Why is refinement a word, a concept that has become so central to how we think about Canova? And, and how is Three Graces a really good example of it? Canova... From first idea to finished work, Canova's entire working process is about refinement, both in the technical sense and that each iteration, once he's decided on his composition, he's making increasingly finer 
or detailed works that lead up to the finished marvel, but also in a conceptual sense that he's trying to distill ideas progressively of form and emotion till they reach the, the, the right pitch that he's pictured in his mind's eye for the finished work. You know, regrettably, we don't have the final three graces where this would all play out. Let me jump in to note that the final three graces is in Russia. Um, and, and there are issues at present. Yes. And the, yes, and the second version is shared between National Gallery or the VA and the National Gallery of Scotland. But I think with all of Canova's works, you see this process of refinement. And it's interesting from that sense, the way that Canova insisted at the very end of his sculptures coming in and applying the finishing touches. So at the very, very end of the entire process, it, it is about technical refinement and about applying those very, very last touches, whether it's you know sagging skin under the eyes, whether it's uh, modulating a little bit of the drapery that, again, allows his sculptures to reach the kind of emotional state that he aspires for them. Canova came under a bit of withering criticism for the fact that so much of his sculptures were perceived as having been executed entirely by his assistants. So it became very important for him publicly, in fact, to, to show that really the finishing touches, that finishing refinement was due to his own hand and what he was applying to the marble, which was seen as something only Canova could, could apply. There are some great stories about that and how that legend was built in your catalog essay. There are sculptures here in which we see bringing romantic emotion to clay or plaster. And there are sculptures here, a couple anyway, that are much more classically ideal and emotionally blank. And there's an example in the exhibition of Canova doing both. And I thought that raising one of those examples might help us understand Canova's use of clay and maybe even plaster too. And so the one I selected is his are his allegories of religion. You have a late 1780s plaster head of religion and a roughly concurrent full figure religion in terracotta. Um, the latter, uh, as, as listeners will be able to see on manpodcast.com, is vastly more emotive. What might we understand between these, these two examples? One of the great loans to the exhibition is the model for the figure of religion, which adorns the left side of the tomb to Clement the 13th that Canova was commissioned to execute for a niche in St. Peter's in the Vatican. And we were able to bring this, this quite large model of the figure to the exhibition from a museum in Lovre, a beautiful idyllic site uh, in northern Italy. It's probably a model, it shows a little bit of the architecture that has been quite sketchily uh, rendered on the right. It's probably the kind of model that Canova created to place in kind of a small wooden architectural model to kind of gauge effects of lighting and to be able to visualize an entire composition in three-dimensional form. And we juxtaposed that model with the full-scale finished plaster model that would have been used by the assistants for carving the finished model. And, you know, one of the main reasons we brought this is because it's really there to demonstrate the gigantic scale at which Canova was working. And it helps to really cement the fact that creating these kinds of monuments uh, involved incredible amounts of labor. There's no way that a single sculptor could have gone about um, taking the plaster head and, and carving the entire figure, him or herself. But yes, it's true. You you do observe the kind of refinement um, that goes across from the model figure looks completely blank stare 
with the the plaster there's there's really an intensity when you walk into the room and you see that plaster off to the left side it, it really really grabs you and it's wonderful to be able to bring that head down to eye level it's it's much higher up on the finished sculpture and, and to appreciate the way that Canova was able to to render the intensity of the gaze and to refine the expression you you also have the terracotta of Clement the Fourteenth here. I am no expert on papal monuments or papal portraiture, but I can't think of very many examples of artists making popes as dramatically emotive as Canova does here. Why does he do that, and how does the what what about that does the terracotta model show us? Yeah, I encourage everybody when they're next in Rome, instead of going off and, and looking at Bernini tombs and monuments to, to go to the Church of Santa Postoli. And uh, it, it is really one of the most striking monuments. And one understands very quickly why Canova became this celebrated sculpture he did. It represents such a sea change in the direction of sculpture at that point in time. He executes this monument when he's about 23, 24 years old. It's his first public commission in Rome. And the simplicity, kind of the severity of style is so at odds with the Baroque creations that preceded him that uh, it it was really a shock to the system for those who saw it. And of course, it required many, many models. We know from documents that cartfuls of clay were arriving every day Mm -hmm. in Canova's studio as he prepared the tomb. And we're fortunate in this case to have what must have been the presentation model for the Pope with this hand overarching Clement the Fourteenth was a, a controversial figure. He was uh, known for a particular edict that did not sit well. And, uh, you know, Canova has, has kind of captured the command that the Pope was known for um, in that one gesture of the, the, the straining hand reaching out over the audiences. The model is painted white, probably to give it a semblance of marble, and therefore this helps to lend credence to the argument that it was something that was presented to the patron to give the patron a a sense of what the finished monument would look like. It's probably also the kind of work that, again, was used in an architectural model to allow Canova to understand what the entire composition would look like. This model is also interesting because when you look at it closely, there are a series of little red X's that have been put all over it. And these were coordinates that must have been used to help Canova and his assistants create the next series of models using a system of proportional enlargement, using calipers and whatnot to measure up to create larger models that would then create the final full-scale model for casting. I cannot wait to see it. Your exhibition has a whole bunch of examples, and we'll get to specifics in a moment, of Canova's in individual works, this love and death, kind of emotional opposites that we'll get to specifics in a moment, both mythological and, and Christian. But why was Canova so interested in love and death, putting them together in individual works as a subject? You know, is that simply peak romanticism being peak romantic or... Or does Canova have other reasons for for being attracted to to these kinds of pairings? I can't honestly say un- unless he simply recognized that you know love and death create those opportunities for the highest of, of emotions, and it was wrestling with those kinds of emotions that Canova cherished, if if anything else. So whether it's a Venus and Adonis, or dealing with Adam and Eve with with the dead Abel, you know. These were clearly subjects that just fascinated him because he was able to 
create an intensity of emotion with those kinds of subjects that he couldn't do with with others. There are a couple early examples in the show of of love and death emotional sculptures that seem to my untrained eye to be pretty early stage in Canova's modeling of an idea. Say maybe take Seder and a Nymph from 1786 or 1787 as as an example. Are these works and particularly these works in clay examples of how we can see Canova's interest in emotion in clay in a medium responsive to his hand and a handheld tool? Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. There's a series of models and we don't necessarily know what they they represent or what he what he's thinking about, but they're all leading towards his composition of Cupid and Psyche, which shows two intertwined figures. And these these models all show intertwined figures. Some seem to be resisting each other and, and struggling. Others uh there's, there's one that's some, almost certainly Venus and Adonis with the, the dead Adonis and Venus, Venus's hands. But again, he's, he's thinking through formal arrangements. He's thinking about how twisting and intertwined bodies react to one another, how they come together, how they can express different emotions. But, you know, thinking also about how, you know, an elbow sticking out at one angle and the way that it pins its the hand against a shoulder expresses one thing. And, you know, there, there are ways to express different emotions in the way that bodies interact in, in other positions. So it's really quite extraordinary. Some of these models are really quick, free sketches. The one of Venus and Adonis that we put in this series doesn't seem to have any tool marks whatsoever, that it's all just rendered with the his hands and his fingers working very quickly. And then there's a much larger model that comes closer to Cupid and Psyche, may not represent Cupid and Psyche, but it uses a lot of tooth tooling. It's larger, but it, it has this kind of Baroque dynamism that then gets lost and translated out into the sensuous qualities we associate with Canova as he worked towards the finished monument. But it's wonderful in the exhibition, we have these models all arranged in a case to see that Canova is just thinking through different formal arrangements very quickly. And then all of these different formal arrangements would be subsumed in his final solution for Cupid and Psyche. As a historian, when you have the opportunity to, which you've done before in your career, we'll come to that a little later on, to work with these clay models, what do you learn from seeing how and where Canova used a tool and how and where he just used his hands? What what types of information about making and thinking do you learn from that? I mean, I think that the thing with Canova that's really particularly interesting is that he was so obsessed with clay that he had this serial process of creating compositions. There are a couple moments in the exhibition where we put the same subject and we have three or four models uh, related to the same subject. And the really minimal changes between each sketch. And one wonders what drove Canova time and again, whether it's over the course of a day, whether it's over the course of an afternoon, to be driven to create these three or four sketch models and just changing little bits of the composition here and there. But in order for him to get to the point where he could model so freely and feel that it didn't represent any labor or really any work for him to to, to model one composition, put it down, model the same one and change the angle of the head by three degrees, he had to devise a system of kind of signature modeling gestures. And my great friend, Tony Siegel, who I've worked with before from Harvard, 
was able to spend a lot of time photographing Canova's models up close and kind of coming up with a repertoire of these distinctive modeling gestures that, you know, uh, totally instinctual to Canova. But, you know, for instance, when he does an eye, it's always kind of this little clockwise motion that he does with his modeling tool. When he wants to suggest anatomy, he does kind of a quick cross that suggests pectorals and abdomen. These things become part of that repertoire that he does over and over again so, so quickly. And it's it's fun to go through the exhibition and see him using this kind of, of system and modeling handwriting over and over again, which is what allows us to know that you know, each one of these models is, in fact, uh, you know, Canova. It's the, the kind of uh, connoisseurship that you can then apply. Another work which you have a progression from clay to plaster to marble is a penitent Magdalene. What kind of narrative do we see? I don't know if changing is the word, but maybe evolving as Canova works through idea and composition. I think one of the interesting things is is what Canova is able to do with this little lump of clay as he's already thinking through the composition of his penitent Magdalene. And, you know, it's a little model that's this, you know, the size of a one's, one's fist almost. But you look at that and the way that the clay figure slumps over and the kind of kind of brutish, almost abstract um, face that has been rendered, you, you sense the, the penitence and the, the weight of sin that has fallen on the penitent Magdalene. And so you're able to take in the finished sculpture where that is also equally evocative in the same same um, sight line as the, the, the very, very first step where Canova knows absolutely the kind of pathos that this figure is supposed to bring. And then we do have a, a plaster that relates to the Penitent Magdalene. The, the reason we brought the plaster is that it's filled with these little pointing marks that dot the surface of many of his plasters. And these were part of the coordinates that were used for his assistants to be able to measure from the plaster model and transfer the design to the marble. As an Americanist, I can't resist asking about George Washington, a subject, a Canova subject, surely more important to people on this side of the Atlantic than the other. Why was Canova interested in Washington? Not only because he was American, but he was an Enlightenment figure, not really of the European world. I don't know, there's all a long way of saying, why was Canova interested in Washington? Canova received a commission to execute a sculpture from the, the State Assembly in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. So it was a, a direct commission, and he was reliant on um, portraits and, and other representations of Washington to begin to think through how to represent Washington. The Frick has did in 2018, I believe, a great exhibition on that one commission. And I think if the Frick hadn't done their exhibition, we would have brought a few more plasters into the mix since it ties Canova so intricately uh, to, to the history of America and shows the real reach of his celebrity. But we brought two models that show how Canova initially, perhaps just going on his own st- instincts and impressions of, of what the first president of, of the United States, what he thought the representation should be, shows kind of a, a philosopher president um, sitting in a toga. And clearly letters flew back and forth um, saying, no, this is, is not the, the correct representation for our first president. And then he begins to change the design into kind of more of the, the warrior president, the general president, uh, with Washington shown wearing uh, a Roman cuirass. 
So we just wanted to represent that change, but the, the terracotta bottle is, is one of Canova's most beautiful in the exhibition. I should note that the Canova Washington made for Raleigh was destroyed by fire in 1831. In 1970, this commissioned a copy after a plaster Canova that's on view to this day in, in the state capitol. What makes that terracotta Washington so good? Well, I just think it's you you can really see Canova's hands at works. You know, this broad toga, you can see his thumb kind of grooving out the 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 creases in in the clay. And also the face is one of the faces where you can see that quick, quick clockwise turn of his modeling tool to render the eyes, then a couple of stabbing strokes for the mouth. And in fact, we have reproduced the the face of George Washington on the side of that particular room, you know, running from almost floor floor to ceiling really inviting viewers to to understand, you know, how to look closely at these terracottas to recognize each and every tool mark and fingerprint. I think there's a place in your catalog essay where where you all note the visages, the faces in a lot of these clay sketch models suggest that faces were kind of the last thing Canova did. Yeah, I think it would be normal for Canova to work up a a, you know, really proper life-size clay model for each portrait he did to understand physiognomy with the clay sketches. I think he's, he's really just working out pose. He's not thinking about physiognomy and certainly pose, you know, has a consequence for the way the, 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 the person looks. But I think with each one, there would have been a number of sittings with Letizia, with, with each one of these individuals to, to work out really the, the minutiae of uh, physiognomy and likeness, which was then transferred onto the marble. We have one early finished terracotta portrait by Canova in the exhibition, and it, it gives you a sense of the kind of model that he would have created for every portrait he received. Is that study of a boy? That's another one. I forgot about that one. And that's such an idiomatic <laughs> figure. We don't know if that's an idealized head, whether it's, you know, it, it seems like it has to be based on on life. But yeah, we don't we don't know what that was really going for. But it, it's one of the most captivating images in the entire exhibition. I have been hearing from artists for a week or so now that they are fascinated, I mean, over and over again on Instagram and an in email, that they have been fascinated by how you found a way to represent within the exhibition the kind of often mysterious process of how not only Canova worked, but kind of, in a way, uh, Rome-based sculptor of marble at the time worked. How did you do that? One of the the star attractions of the exhibition is uh, not a work of art. There's a video within the exhibition that represents a sculptor based in Vermont, Fred Brownstein, who, um, you know, is in, in his 70s, if not early 80s, trained in Italy and Pietrasanta and Carrara, learned the traditional ways of carving the, the same ways that Canova would have carved. And uh, after months of searching, we were able to locate Fred and we convinced him to recreate a Canova sculpture for us from beginning to end. And we filmed him every day over the course of five, six months as he worked from first sketch all the way to finished marble, put that together in a six minute film that takes you through each stage in the process. I know it's been a big hit because it really brings to life what Canova is doing in the exhibition. Finally, you have now co-organized exhibitions of the clay works by the greatest sculptor of the 17th century, Bernini, and now the greatest sculptor of the late 18th and early 19th century, a 40-year period, Canova, which is to say you've spent a lot of time in the last decade and a half on clay. 
has working between Bernini and Canova and their their handling of clay taught you things that maybe you didn't expect to be taught? I mean, I, I just continue to be struck by the intimacy of clay and the way that it opens a window on the imagination of these sculptors that is so hard to perceive when you look at the finished works. So it's that lesson over and over and again. You know, I recognize the opportunities with the terracotta models as well. I mean, if I wanted to stage an exhibition of Canova, you know, it'd be impossible to travel yeah. all the marbles, you know, the plasters present all kinds of problems to try to travel. But, you know, thanks to the generosity of the lenders, we are able to bring, you know, over half, you know, a, a really impressive group of his his terracottas, put them with some key marbles and tell the full story of Canova's career in a way that wouldn't be possible in any other media. And it was the same with Bernini. I mean, how are you going to travel the sculptures from the Della Borghese and, and, you know, from St. Peter's to Fort Worth or to New York, but with the terracotta models, you can really open a window on who Bernini was in America. Kirsten, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Fay Heavy Shield Confluences, curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, on view now through August 6th. Confluences features a selection of Fay Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Gaina stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's Digital Guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez-Munoz implements a playful, witty style often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org.
Welcome back. Next up, Griselda Rosas joins me to discuss her new show at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. It's titled Griselda Rosas, Yote Cuido. It is a presentation of Rosas's textile drawings and sculptural installations, works that often explore themes of inheritance, colonialism, and intergenerational knowledge. It was curated by Anthony Graham with assistance from Jill Dawsey. It's on view in MCASD's La Jolla Galleries through August 13th. Griselda Rosas, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Your work is often not too far away from children, from their presence, from the mythology created around them, from their interests, from their drawings, as I'm sure we'll talk about here in a moment. I'm not sure I'd say if your work starts with children. In fact, I don't think I would, but children are certainly there. Why did you want to get children into the work? I think I have two life. One before I became a mother and one that I, once I became a mother. So when I became a mother, I used to only make sculptures. But with my son, he was so little that I started drawing and doing a lot of embroidery. And then as my son got older, like a toddler, he started very curious, interested on the things I was doing. So he often draw with crayons or markers or anything. So I play after he stained my paper, I worked with his marks, mark making. But then also, I was more intrigued about childhood and the things that I used to play with. And I remember thinking about horses or slingshots or things that come from war and now they belong to children's toys. So I started drawing a lot of things that, that we inherited from is the aftermath of war. And then they become kids' toys. And I think things are changing, but we used to go to this market in Tijuana, and my son was always intrigued by the slingshot mechanism. And then and then he was also very intrigued by horses. So I started doing relating history and then childhood toys. And then also my son's drawings. So the three combined in one plane. I get the first two. Tell me a little bit more about how you made use of your children's drawings. Well, he used to like draw on my surface when he was younger, only because he wanted to be next to me. And then to incorporate my practice into being motherhood, he often used to draw on my own surface. Like, or he learned to use a sewing machine very little, like four or five, always under supervision. So, but he used to like the textile underneath the needle, the needle machine, and he loved and loved and loved it. So he used to be a collaboration in a way of my work. And as he got older, he's nine now, around seven or eight, he started making these monster-like drawings. So then I carbon, I copied his drawings and then I did embroidery of his monster drawings or his creatures. So I started doing embroideries of his, his drawings, and they look like mythological creatures. So I, I'm very intrigued by the way he creates. But as he gets older, you can tell that he's more contaminated by culture. They're not as innate. He thinks about being right or wrong. So everything about childhood changes, I think, around nine. So now it's, it's different. So I have a separation. I don't have, he's not no longer my collaborator. Although he's always around, 
it does he's not as curious as before with my practice <laughs> well it's, as he gets older he may want a co-credit um <laughs> <laughs> no he charged me for his drawings five dollars he, oh, he really? understood <laughs> yes yes he's my he's my my mother was a painter, and I wish I'd thought of that <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> no, he said, Mama, you're using my drawings. And I say, yes, but, and I say, but I'm going to give you credit. And he asked me what's credit, and we had a conversation. And then he said, well, do you sell your artwork? And I say, yes. What if you pay me for my drawings? And I say, yes, I will pay you $5. And he said, yes. Oh, amazing. So he understood the whole process, the art business, really well, better than I did. <laughs> I think he may understand it better than some people in the art world. You mentioned embroidery a moment ago. I mean, of course, we'll have images on manpodcast.com. But, you know, for audio purposes, you often sew textiles and embroidery into works on paper. And, of course, you make have made standalone sculptures that feature textiles and embroidery too. Speaking of the works on paper, what about sewing into paper and bringing textile into paper interested you? Well, I'm very intrigued by paper. I think paper is a very novel historical surface. And I learned how to do embroidery when I was about seven on the first embroidery I did and this is an old-fashioned thing. I don't think people do it now, a middle age. When I was in elementary school, they teach you. They used to teach you how to do a, tor a tortilla napkin. So I learned how to embroider a tortilla napkin because it was like a gender practice. And then we always made one for Mother's Day for our mothers. But then I want to like play with things that also my son was playing with paper. And then I was doing watercolors. So I thought why not do embroidery on, on paper instead of a cotton textile? So then I started doing embroidery on paper and I really enjoy the practice. And it's technically it's more difficult. It's not as easy as on textile because it creates holes and it breaks and then you have to kind of patch. But I think I, I really like the language it creates. We've been talking about kid stuff, but your work is also very, very full of adult stuff, including various faith traditions and mythological beliefs. And there's, in a whole lot of your work, there is a whole lot of address of Catholicism, address of particularly Mexican or Spanish imperial imagery. Why is that an important point of address for you? And what do you hope you're doing in how you bring your references to Catholicism into the work? For a long time, I've been very interested in war and regalia and also traditional Mexican custom. And I live in Oaxaca for on and off. I, every other year I went for one, two or three months. So I of Oaxaca was often my reference, and I live on the indigenous communities, and I'm profoundly drawn and intrigued by traditional custom clothing. And a lot of the custom clothing comes from European colonization, like the Virgin attire. But also I grew up Catholic, and then all these references are part of my background, which I never consider 
relevant because once something is very innate to you, it's second nature. But then once I remove myself from being absorbed in capitalism, I can see the violent imagery and then syncretism and then all these practices as contemporary society still develop as everyday rituals. And also my mother was a huge devotee of Virgen de Guadalupe. So a lot of my imagery is kind of in honor of the female representation. It's kind of like an iconic national representation of what a good female should be. And he's a brown virgin and it has all these historical references to a pre-colonial goddess. So I'm, I'm combining history, traditional custom clothing, and my background in, in Catholicism. So it's all this research that goes on a cycle. Some of my favorite of those works are artworks in which a, a cultural collision, if you will, plays out on the surface of your works. There is, there, there are the Catholic references, including, including a Mary or a Marian image, often on top of or surrounded by violence. And that violence is often presented with childlike, back to children, presented with a certain childlike imagery. What about mixing church with violence with childlike representations of that violence works for you? Well, of, of course, this is an implicit history, right? It's like, it's a continuous next generation still have, even my son generation, things are changing radically, but still like every generation goes through the same cycle of violence and abuse through Catholic church. But I don't want to make this a direct message. It's just I also want to work with the poetics of the religious aesthetics and, and also bring awareness, maybe not awareness, that's not the right word, maybe bring a historical reference, but in with poetry and not so much. I'm not, I'm not sure how to paraphrase this, but definitely I'm making a, a criticism, but I, it's not my, I don't think my work is being activist, but I don't think it's, passive either. I'm talking about what we inherit and what will be inherited through the next generation, basically. So I guess I don't know how to phrase it correctly, but, but it is a cycle of violence. And we inherit and we think it's okay in, as a national thing. Like I say, I think there's uprising a new mindset now, especially in, in the capital, like Mexico City. But I think as a general the Catholic Church still, and the views on morality, and and still very violent country is all is all one single is almost one single entity. There's no separation between violence and religion. They're all they're together. And and I think that comes shouting through in the work. I mean, I I, I think the work in the way no single part of a piece of paper or anything within the pictorial rectangle is prioritized, you know, points to a unity between, you know, violence and religious history and culture. You know, I, 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 I think that's really clear and, and direct. Now is where I will try to awkwardly segue to breastfeeding. <laughs> Let's see if I could come up with a way to do that. <laughs> 
you know, a few years ago when I was refereeing, I did, I decided that I want to like make an encyclopedia of all the words, all the artworks in history of breastfeeding. So I started doing these like crazy research about icons and then not, not only European, but pre-colonial Aztec through all kinds of cultures like Asian about breastfeeding. And then I wrote an article actually that I should share with you about breastfeeding through history. And then I did cyanotypes, and I want to use the cyanotypes to make my encyclopedia of breastfeeding icons. And then as I was making the cyanotypes, I was thinking, oh, I think these pieces will look good with embroidery. So I started doing embroidery on these cyanotypes. But then I found a lot of interesting information. I found this painting by, I forgot the painter actually, but I would think it's Velasquez, who... I have to, I, my memory is not working at this moment, but it was a woman breastfeeding and she had developed facial hair. So she had a beard and a mustache and she was breastfeeding and then she was painted next to her husband. So I encountered all these like really peculiar that we're not used to seeing about breastfeeding women. And then I was more intrigued about breastfeeding and is milk actually breast milk is tissue anyway i went off hours and hours of doing research about breastfeeding and then i had a journal too and i never fully developed my encyclopedia <laughs> or my artwork but i did a lot of pieces about with embroidery cyanotypes and i i think they're they're small and i had a lot of fun doing those pieces i really enjoy the process and i when I go back, but I also think that is a part of my life that is is not no longer relevant because I'm not a breastfeeding mother, so I'm not as intrigued as before. No, but they are really interesting works. I mean, there is like in 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 the in the, in the works about kind of cultural collision and Catholicism and violence we were talking about a moment ago. There are in those works, you know, these these relentlessly overlapping histories within an individual work of yours. And in the and in the breastfeeding icons, I think that's there too. I mean, there's there's not only the classic mythology, say, of Romulus and Remus suckling a she wolf, kind of the origin story of Rome, not kind of the origin story of Rome, but you're also, you know, as you mentioned, using cyanotypes, a medium pioneered by a woman, Anna Atkins. You're adding adding embroidery to them, you know, kind of complicating a story of. of gender expectations, gendered expectations. And like that earlier work, there are all of these layers happening at once, and I always enjoy that. <laughs> I like having... Yeah, and you know, also, sorry I interrupt you, I, I also find, I also found that most breastfeeding icons, there were like really young women, like teenagers, like something that in our society, like, is, is you know what, it's not permissible, like, is, is look... They're mostly teenagers. They look like maximum 18 and now breastfeeding women, like there will be, I would say middle age or in their late twenties. So it's interesting to also find these different ways, perspective view, motherhood. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, one of the things that you do in, in those breastfeeding icons is, you know, you are not hewing only to stories from Christian or Catholic countries. 
you know, there is one, one of the breastfeeding icons uh, involves a, a picture from, I presume, an Egyptian frieze or Egyptian statuary. Another is from Indian art. And they're all pretty young. They all look pretty young. Yes. And also, I look up my article. This is a painter. The painter, his name is Jose de Rivera. Oh, yeah. And the piece is called, it's a Spanish painting. It's called Mujer Barbuda. And it's like a, one of the um, most interesting pieces that I found for gender. And then, of course, Mother Krishna and Mother and then... Anyway, I, I, I thought it was like a very interesting project. And maybe in the future I will complete my encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably enjoy that. Which is very extensive. It's very extensive. But like I say, I think, I think it's no longer me. So I think it, it's not something I'm very intrigued anymore. But I, I did love the project. And I, I, and I think they, those embroideries were good. I, I like the process. I want to wrap up by talking about a couple of sculptures in the show. The largest sculpture in the exhibition features wood string that pins the sculptures down on a wall. And then at the bottom of these pieces of wood, there are these round forms covered with mud. They're really unlike anything else in the show. I know exactly what you're talking. There is a on a really tall wall and they're actually not mud they're like cement so what they are is they're actually I've been thinking about slingshots profoundly not not only because it was a very inexpensive toy of my childhood I never kill birds but I used to break bottles with my neighbors I grew up like not too far away from the border wall so I saw the wall from being chicken wire to later be this metal structure to have these like surveillance. So I saw the whole stages of the wall, but then that wall wasn't far from my house and, and we played there with just breaking bottles with slingshots. But then a slingshot is also a metaphor to getting to the other side almost. And then, and then recently I saw slingshots being used on the Ukrainian war, the, on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, on gangs in Central America, but then also doing all my research about war regalia and war instruments, the Aztecs and the Toltecs make these like really beautiful, uh, elaborate slingshots, either with jade or wood or carving wood. But they're like so, they're pieces of, they're magnificent, they're well crafted, and they're like. And then the, many of them survive in different museums. So I I did a whole, re, like, I like to do research on very peculiar things like slingshots. And then also the fascination that my son had with the technicality of putting a rock and then being shot and get it really far away. So I, I not only like the system, which is very ancestral and very basic, but I also like the his, the global history that unify slingshots. It's not only pertinent to one culture, it belongs to humanity in a way, like a primitive tool. So that helps me with the question I was trying to ask enormously, which was in the slingshots with the blue and white handles, is the, is the blue and white a way of referencing a specific culture vis-a-vis -vis the ones with the handles that look like mud, but which actually aren't? Well, the blue and white 
there's a, a very um, beautiful ceramic made in, in Mexico called Talavera. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's blue and white like the Portuguese tiles. But I think it comes from China. I think it's a Chinese invention and adopted in different ways in different parts of the world, particularly Portugal and Talavera in Mexico. So I think all those cross-cultural things made through colonization, adopted through colonization, are something that permeates contemporary culture now, especially crafts and culture and in, in sections of the country, in Mexico, of course. And then it's something that we highly value growing up, the blue and white plates. And there's also, we had pozole plates when I was growing up and they were all blue and white. And their very pozole plates are very specific. They have like a flower rim. So I was trying to mimic that ceramic into another form of creating a slingshot. But that installation is very particular because I was also looking at the way gun rocks are placed in museums, like gun rocks. So, so it's one stock after so I, I stuck them making reference to the way gun racks are organized. You've used that blue and white in other sculptural works, too. It's, it's really striking. Awesome. Griselda Rosas, thanks so much. Thanks to you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.